0: Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 414th episode, we have a bunch of news, including, I think we have two or three new dinosaurs, potentially.
1: Three new dinosaurs. Two of them are sauropods.
0: Yeah. (laughs) We also have a segment about connecting chocolate to dinosaurs.
1: Yes. We'll come up with a name for this segment one of these days. (laughs) Yeah. And there's also some news items on dinosaur tracks, and a lot of interesting things around dinosaurs and their ancestors, and dinosaurs and birds.
0: We also have dinosaur of the day, Xanabazar, which is one of the most fun dinosaur names to say. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, we have a fun fact. But before we get into all of that, we want to thank some of our patrons, and this week we have one new patron to thank, and that's Saskisaurus. Thank you very much for joining. And then rounding out our shout-outs, we've got Tarkia Tamer, Miriam, JC, English Graham, Bob, Oscar, Fog Knight, Leo, and T-Bear.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much for joining and being uh, one of the Dino Know-It-Alls. Oh. (laughs)
0: Dino-It-Alls? (laughs)
1: Dino-It-Alls. Ooh, still getting used to saying that.
0: Yeah. So jumping into the news... Uh, first, we're going to talk about a new giant theropod as it's described. Oh, yeah. It was published in Historical Biology by Alessandro Paterna and Andrea Cow. Hopefully, I got those names right. It's another large predator from the Kem beds in Morocco. It appears to be an Allosauroid, by the way, the features of it are. And given that it's very large and in the late Cretaceous in Morocco, it was almost certainly a Carcharodontosaurid, because that's what was around there.
1: Well, there were Spinosaurus.
0: Oh, I mean for an Allosauroid. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) A few weeks back, we talked about a new Abelosaurid from the Bahario Formation. I almost said Bahario Oasis, trying to get away from that. It wasn't named because it was only a single vertebra, but it added an Abelosaurid to the area that already had Spinosaurus, Carcharodontosaurus, and some really big crocodilians. So we had just another member, like another group entirely into this group that was already crowded with large carnivores. And the Baharia formation and the Chemchem beds are often compared. Both formations are from the Cenomanian, which is the 94 to 100 million years ago time period. In geological terms, that means they're basically contemporary, but since the average species only lives for about 2 million years, they could have been pretty different depending on how close the ages were within that span. Mm -hmm. They do seem to be pretty similar, though, in that there are several species that are in both formations, so it's likely that they were pretty close in time. For example, there's Carcharodontosaurus saharicus and Spinosaurus, maybe Egypticus (laughs) in both. Although they are really far apart physically. They're about 2,000 miles or over 3,000 kilometers apart. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, they're really far. On a map, it doesn't look that far because things at the equator sort of get shrunken down Mm -hmm. when you look at them on a map. And then things near the poles get really expanded, which is why Antarctica and Canada and stuff always look enormous Mm -hmm. compared to how big they actually are. I mean, they're big, but not that big. Since they're also on the same continent, they're just as far apart now as they were in the Mesozoic. It's not like stuff in Brazil, which used to be about two to 3,000 miles right. from Morocco and is now on the other side of an ocean. They're the same distance. For comparison, the late Cretaceous formations of southern Brazil and Patagonia are significantly closer, and we see a lot of differences between those locations. So... Usually, when you get thousands of miles apart, you'll start to see some differences. But we haven't seen too many between the Kem Kem beds and the Bahariya formation.
1: Interesting. I wonder why that is.
0: I don't know. But I'm always a little bit skeptical that they are completely the same. And for example, the Spinosaurus from Morocco has been proposed as the holotype for Spinosaurus Mm aegypticus, which was obviously named from one in Egypt, thus the aegypticus. And there is a species named Spinosaurus Moroccanus that was named based on having proportionally longer vertebrae in its neck. Mm-hmm. The ratio is like 1.5 lengths to height versus 1.1 lengths to height for the Egypticus. But later on, people were like, well, we don't really know if that's, it's that different. And the holotype was destroyed. Maybe it wasn't drawn that precisely and things like that. But we can't compare it to Spinosaurus egypticus because that holotype was destroyed.
1: <laughs> yeah. Stromer tried to save it.
0: Yeah, so I'm sort of in the camp of not making a neotype and just saying, well, everything we have is Spiranosaurus morocanus, and then maybe eventually we'll find some more stuff in Egypt from the Bahariya formation, and then we can iron it out then, but I don't know. I'm kind of alone on that one, so <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's a hill I would die on. So the Chemchem beds are also known from another Carcharodontosaurid. They have Sauraniops which basically means the eye of Sauron.
1: Oh, Lord of the Rings reference.
0: Yeah. So yeah, Sauron is Sauron. And then Eops basically means eye. So eye of Sauron. It was named that because it's only known from the bone above the eye socket. So it's like the eye bone.
1: Wait, go, just going back to the name real quick. Maybe Tolkien should have used that in his books because they talk about the eye of Sauron.
0: Oh, could have called this Sauraniops? Yeah. He does do a lot of Latin stuff and things. So yeah, he could have. Maybe that's what like the elves would have called it or something. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because a lot of these characters have like five names in different languages since he was all into the linguistics. I've got more about Tolkien in our fun fact. But back to the dinosaur Sauraniops, the only bone we have is that frontal above the eye. It's about 186 millimeters or seven and a half inches long. It's not much to go on for naming a species.
1: Well, the name is fitting because it's about the eye.
0: Yes. (laughs) It also has a little bump on it that might have been a small dome when it was alive. So it's sort of an interesting feature near the eye as well. So maybe worth naming it based on its eye. But obviously, it's just a small bone, so it's hard to know much about the dinosaur. We do have that bone in other Carcharodontosaurids, and it looks fairly different, including that dome and basically where it attaches to the bones in front of it, which is why it got named its own genus. The full skull has been given different estimates in size. One estimate had it at a little over half the length of Carcharodontosaurus, and also possibly a juvenile based on that small size. That was in another paper. or it could be that it was a little bit bigger than Carcarodontosaurus rather than about half the size. That's what the lead author on the original paper and also the same person who's co-author on this new paper thinks. They have a section on Sauroniops in this paper.
1: Those are two very different ideas.
0: Yes. And obviously, if it's on the bigger side, it wouldn't be a juvenile. So it's different in that way, too. It just sort of depends on what you're comparing it to. If you're comparing it to Carcharodontosaurus carolinii, which is in Morocco, then the proportions of it make it look like it's quite a bit smaller. But the shape and where the bone attaches, you remember how I said it attaches to the bones in front of it Mm -hmm. in a little bit different way? If you look at the more similar Carcharodontosaurus that have that sort of frontal, they're in Argentina and they seem to be about the same size if you scale it as Carcharodontosaurus. So, It's all based on what you scale it relative to, and we only have this one tiny bone, so it's really speculative. Like We really don't know, but I do think there's enough there to say that Sauraniops is not just a synonym of Carcharodontosaurus, which is still being debated.
1: Hmm.
0: It's also possible that this new find might be a piece from Sauraniops. It would definitely help support that it's different from Carcharodontosaurus or is different than Carcharodontosaurus if that's the case because there are differences in this new piece too. Mm-hmm. They found two new pieces of this new find. Both pieces are from the upper jaw. They have part of the maxilla which is by the teeth and a part of the jugal which is behind the teeth but still in that upper jaw area. There are a couple differences from Carcharodontosaurus. The maxilla is rough, not smooth like Carcharodontosaurus it sort of has the appearance more like a cheese grater. A cheese
1: grater. <laughs>
0: Sometimes they describe it as like ornamented too, meaning that it's you know not just smooth.
1: <laughs> Quick connect cheese and dinosaurs.
0: Now another time.
1: <laughs> no, I'm thinking you already did with this cheese grater. Oh
0: yeah, that's true. <laughs> Retroactively make it a connection between the <laughs> two. There are also bulges around the bone for each tooth in Carcharodontosaurus, but you don't see that in this new bone that was discovered, the new maxillary piece. The bones are pretty small. They're only 205 millimeters or about eight inches long and 225 millimeters or about nine inches long. So when you combine those, it's like a foot and a half, but that only makes up about a half to a third of the length of the skull. So the skull, if it was complete, would have been several feet long, meaning the skull is from a large-bodied theropod. Hmm. We can't really say exactly how big it was, again, because we're working with some smaller fragments. But if they're proportional to what they look most similar to, it could be about the size of an Acrocanthosaurus or a Carcharodontosaurus iguidensis, which is the smaller species of Carcharodontosaurus compared to Carol and I. So. If that's proportional, again, it was like another step removed (laughs) from estimation, it would mean that the animal would be roughly 11 meters or in the mid thirties of feet long, which is big. Mm -hmm. I think massive is a fair assessment there. And it would weigh very roughly about five tons. So not quite big. Yeah. One of the biggest dinosaurs, certainly one of the biggest theropods that ever lived. If those numbers are right, it's also possibly another carnivore for stromer's riddle if you assume that it was over in the baharia formation as well if they overlapped that way mm-hmm. and that's of course if it's not soraniops then we might have three swords because it would be Carcarodontosaurus carol and i soraniops and this new one all swords in the Kem Kem beds
1: and how did they all live together
0: yeah i do think that it's probable that this might be Sauraniops since we don't have any of the jaw. We only have that eye bone. Mm -hmm. And that's what they said in the paper. That's why they didn't name this a new dinosaur because they were like, we don't have the overlapping piece. And they don't like naming things when you don't have enough information. There are varying opinions on this. We see dinosaurs that are named without overlapping material pretty often, but they're not in that camp. (laughs) (laughs) And I appreciate that.
1: All right, we got the carnivore out of the way. Now we can move on to the sauropods. Good. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure there's at least one other person out there who agrees with me on this.
0: Sauropods are cool. (laughs) Some of them are named based on a couple vertebrae, and it's just like, oh, we got another one in this spot, and that's not too exciting. But other ones are very interesting. Like last week, the one with the really short neck. That's pretty crazy. Yeah, that was.
1: This one's a new titanosaur. Iberania para.
0: Or Ibirania, depending on how much you want to anglicize it.
1: Oh, good point. This was published in Omega Niana by Bruno Navarro and others. Ibirania lived in the late Cretaceous. It was found in the São José do Rio Preto Formation in what is now Southeast Brazil. It looks like other sauropods, just smaller. It had a long neck and tail and it walked on four legs. A skeletal reconstruction in the paper shows a human figure standing next to it and the human's head is above the titanosaurs. Oh Wow,
0: that is small.
1: Yeah. So maybe it'd make for a good pet. I don't You know. always go to that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I think it's the picture of the person next to it that makes you think I could be that person next to it and yes. it could be mine.
1: <laughs> yeah. How cool would that be? Anyway, it's one of the smallest sauropods known so far. It's estimated to be 18.7 feet or 5.7 meters long. And the paper says it's a nanoid taxa.
0: So it would not be a good pet that's way too big. (laughs) You don't even like dogs (laughs) that are over like 100 pounds for a pet. You're going to get a a sauropod that's longer than like our house.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm sure feeding it would be expensive. Yeah. It is similar in size to Magyarosaurus. The histology found that the skeletons found so far were skeletally mature.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, a lot of times they aren't skeletally mature. And then we have to do that guessing game of how much bigger would they have gotten? How close were they? Mm -hmm. So as an adult under six meters long, that is tiny.
1: Yeah, nanoid taxa.
0: And it was just in Brazil. It wasn't even on an island. Weird.
1: Yeah, it did not live on an island. So the small size probably isn't due to... Insular pressures, like when animals evolve to smaller sizes because they live in a small area like an island.
0: It's not just an island dwarf, it's a regular dwarf.
1: Yeah. There were other titanosaurs and notosuchians, a type of crocodilomorph that lived alongside it. Most titanosaurs found in the area are in the small to medium sizes, so around 26 to 33 feet or 8 to 12 meters long. Hmm.
0: What is going on there?
1: Well, there may have been pressures in the environment similar to living on an island, which made them smaller in size. Hmm. It lived in an arid climate with braided streams, and the dry seasons may have caused those pressures.
0: Interesting. So there's just not enough food around, or at least not consistently.
1: Yeah. At least four specimens of Iberania have been found. The holotype includes vertebrae, parts of the arms, parts of the hands and feet, other fossils include more vertebrae and a nearly complete fibula, the leg bone. They found seven unique features. It's mostly details in the back vertebrae, which is why it's a new species, well, new genus. It's part of Saltosaurinae, which is a subfamily of titanosaurs that are relatively small. They include Saltosaurus and Paralatitan.
0: Those are my favorite ones because some of them have scutes, sort of <laughs> like ankylosaurs. <laughs> And I think in general they are a little bit on the smaller side.
1: Yeah, pet size. <laughs> <laughs> maybe
0: It might be a good pet for like a Diplodocus or something, like a much larger animal.
1: <laughs> mm, maybe. Ibirania probably had robust limbs that's based on the fragments found, and that's like other saltosaurids. The genus names a combination of the name Ibirá, which is... According to the paper, quote, the municipality in which the specimens were found, end quote, and ania, which is a, quote, modified form of the Greek word plania, end quote, and that means wander. The name Ibera is a, quote, Portuguese derivative from the Tupi word Ibera, and that means tree or wood. So when you put it together, the genus name means tree wanderer, and that alludes to its browser feeding behavior.
0: Oh, that's kind of cool. Plus, you were talking about how it was a pretty arid place. There might not have been a lot of plants. You can imagine this thing sort of wandering through the desert, trying to find some trees.
1: (laughs) Yeah. The species name, again, is Parva, and that is feminine. And it comes from the Latin word parvis, which means small or little. And that just refers to how small it is.
0: The little tree wanderer.
1: Yeah. What a cute name. (laughs) It is good. We did talk about this dinosaur back in episode 386, but it didn't have a name yet, so now it does. And at the time, we talked about how it had extremely pneumatic bones, and the fossils helped show that even smaller sauropods could have air sacs, something they inherited from their large ancestors. We also talked about this dinosaur in episode 316, and oh, this was about the dinosaur's blood parasites and acute osteomyelitis. There's an image, I don't know if you remember, Garrett, of the a really, a poor sauropod with open sores covering its body.
0: Oh, yeah. That's intense.
1: Yeah. It had a bone infection that reached the bone through the bloodstream and then spread, and outside of the bone appeared lesioned.
0: Yep, that's nasty.
1: And the scientists who studied it found actual microorganisms. So we know a lot about this dinosaur already. And Now it's got a name.
0: I like to think of it wandering looking for trees more than the nasty injury that it had.
1: Yeah, it is a nicer image. (laughs) The next new dinosaur is a massapodon sauropodomorph, Twibingosaurus meyerfurtzorum.
0: That's a mouthful.
1: That is. This was published in Vertebrate Zoology by Omar Rafael Regalado Fernandez and Ingmar Wernberg. Toybingosaurus lived in the Triassic in what is now Germany, and it had been misidentified as Platyosaurus for about 100 years. <laughs> it's one of those.
0: There are a lot of Platyosaurus in Germany. Yeah. So I guess I could see how you'd make that mistake.
1: As you can imagine, it looked similar to Platyosaurus. It had a bulky body, a long neck, a long tail. It's been depicted as quadrupedal, going on four legs.
0: It's interesting. You said it has a long neck. I guess it's long. It's long for its time. Yeah. Right? (laughs) In the Triassic-Jurassic boundary type time period.
1: And proportionally. If you're looking at a picture of it.
0: But compared to later sauropods, its neck is not so long, even proportionally. Sure.
1: It's estimated to be about 20 feet or six meters long, six and a half feet or two meters tall. And that's based on a reconstruction in the paper, which... So it's a a rough estimate we did. And that's based on and modified from illustrations that Friedrich von Heun did back in 1932. Oh, wow. It was found in the Trossingen Formation, which was, according to the paper, quote, probably a constant accumulation of carcasses through miring and transport down a river for hundreds of years, end quote.
0: That's quite a place to be. Yeah. (laughs) Hundreds of years of carcasses piling up.
1: Think of all the fossils. Yeah. The authors did a review on the literature of platyosaurus which was also found in that formation, and in the paper, they go through the history. We cover platyosaurus in episode 152 as our dinosaur of the day, if you want to hear more about platyosaurus They said that their review, quote, showed there is not a defined consensus on what specimens belong to platyosaurus end quote. And they also said, quote, the fact that it has been illustrated since the early 20th century is part of platyosaurus they're referring to Twibingosaurus here, may suggest that some noise has been introduced into the phylogenetic analyses of the past decade by assuming all the medium to large sauropodomors for Germany belong to the same species. I see. So they did say there is a need to review other material referred to Pladeosaurus.
0: Yeah, Pladeosaurus is like I mean, reportedly one of the best known dinosaurs because we have so many individuals of it. Mm-hmm. But I suppose if it turns out that it's actually multiple,
1: multiple dinosaurs, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. But it's good to do because like they said, that kind of screws up your analysis of Pleiosaurus because then you're including a bunch of stuff that isn't Plateosaurus, and you're thinking, oh, it had all this variability in this mm-hmm. feature. And it's like, no, those are just different animals.
1: Yeah. Is Pleiosaurus a wastebasket taxon like Megalosaurus? <laughs> Could be. <laughs> Now the holotype of Tuebingsaurus has been in the University of Tübingen's collection since 1922. The specimen historically has been known as GPIT the fourth IV. It includes a complete pelvis, vertebrae, chevron's, parts of the legs and feet. It's basically a good chunk of the back half of the body. Nice. Previously there were parts of the jaw and forelimbs that were associated with the specimen, but they were better preserved than the other fossils. And we don't know how close they were found to those other fossils. There's nothing in the notes about it. And these are not articulated with the rest of the bones. And the jaw and forelimb bones, they're embedded in a plastic matrix. So they would probably be damaged if they were removed. They're glued to the plastic and they were part of a diorama display to simulate mud burial. So it is too hard to say that they were part of the same specimen.
0: Weird. They got glued into a diorama. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's not something we do anymore with the real fossils.
1: (laughs) No, but I don't think it's that uncommon or that kind of
0: display.
1: Yeah. It was uncommon for fossils found at a certain time period.
0: Interesting. And they might have just figured, well, it's a, you know, it's a Palladiosaurus. We got tons of these. We use that one in the diorama. And then later on, you find out, oh, actually, it might be its own genus, and we want to have it in a holotype, but we well, can't It now.
1: took a hundred years. So. That's true. The genus name refers to the city of Tubingen in Germany, and the species name refers to Uwe Fritz, the editor-in-chief of the journal Vertebrate Zoology, and Wolfgang Meyer, the professor of evolutionary zoology Of the university from 1987 to 2007. Fritz helped Wernberg and another author, Irina Roof, honor Meyer with a Feistschrift, which is a commemorative book that was published for Wolfgang Meyer's 80th birthday this year in 2022. The unique features of Toybingosaurus are details in basically all the bones found, like various depressions in the bone, or projections in the bone, or things being fused, things of that nature. These features were more like derived sauropodomorphs than Plateosaurus, and the histology of the femur shows similarities with musaurus and Lessemsaurus, meaning faster growth rates. Toybingosaurs lived in an area with swamps and forests. There were a lot of ferns, horsetails, and cycads. The cortical bone on the left side of the fossil the dense outer surface of the bone is, quote, fractured into flakes, which can be explained if the carcass was exposed over a long time on the mud, two to four years before being buried, end quote. So it may have sunk in a mud trap Hmm. for two to four years and then it was buried.
0: Yeah. I mean, you imagine these large animals. It's hard to get them buried the whole body quickly. And you said it was like the most of the back half of the animal, mm-hmm. which means a lot of it had to, had to be a lot of mud oh, to cover yeah. the thing up. You could see how it would take a few seasons.
1: Yeah, and, and mud levels can change. Reminds me of an old story. My coworker told me once of he had to bury his aunt's horse <laughs> and uh, they ran out of time to do it. So they threw it in a nearby lake <laughs> and then... They had a drought later that year, and they just saw the, the horse's legs coming out of the water.
0: Did other people notice? Yes. Oh, no. Including
1: his aunt, who she thought the horse was, bear- was her favorite horse, apparently.
0: Oh, and they got <laughs> in trouble.
1: They did get in trouble.
0: <laughs> the moral of the story is, I don't know what. Do what your aunt tells you. Maybe. <laughs> I,
1: I was just thinking about in terms of why it would take this Bingosaurus a long time to get buried.
0: Yeah. Take even longer if you just left the horse there and said like, well, it'll get, it'll get buried on its own. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh. And we've got some more news, including a juvenile T-Rex. But first, we're going to pause for a quick sponsor break.
1: This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College
0: you can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August
1: 5th head over to cncc.edu/dinodig you'll get all of the details just make sure that you register online by May 31st and again that is cncc.edu/dinodig d i n o d i g bp added more than 70 billion dollars to the US economy in 2022
0: Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Archaea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
1: We've got a lot of other news, starting with a juvenile T-Rex was recently found. Nice. Yeah, this is by Tribal Paleontology, Inc. Apparently, their curator, Anthony Maltese, had been looking for this T-Rex for 25 years.
0: Meaning he was hoping to find a juvenile T-Rex or they knew that there was one out there?
1: They've been studying this area for more than 10 years, so it sounded like they knew something was out there. Hmm. They walked over 100 miles this past field season in the summer going over this area.
0: And you don't walk particularly fast when you're looking for fossils.
1: (laughs) No, you want to be slow. Otherwise, you might miss something. Yeah. They were able to find the bones because of erosion, and they were scattered under some soft mud. They said they found about 15% of the skeleton so far. It's a large juvenile. It might have been scavenged by a fellow T-Rex. There's also evidence of disease and other injuries. Oh, cool. (laughs)
0: I mean, cool. Yeah, because
1: pathologies—they're
0: interesting. Although
1: you were just saying with the sauropod, you'd, you'd rather hear, think about it wandering than its pathologies. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's true. I guess I have less sympathy for T. Rex than mm. I do for sauropods. <laughs> <You> see, <laughs> I didn't do nothing to nobody.
1: <laughs> well, this specimen is nicknamed Valerie. That's after Anthony Maltese's wife, and it's on display currently at the Dinosaur Resource Center in Woodland Park, in Colorado. Cool. Yeah, pretty cool find.
0: I think that's a for-profit group, Tribal Paleontology, but I'm not entirely sure where they fall on the spectrum because there's a wide spectrum of like for-profit, but mostly sell to museums. Mm. I think they're closer to that side. And then there's the other end of the spectrum, which is like purely commercial and almost always sells to private collectors.
1: Yeah, I don't remember their details.
0: I mean, if it's on display at the Dinosaur Resource Center in Woodland Park, that sounds like a public thing. Well, so I that's think nice. that's
1: their headquarters. Cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool.
0: I will be interested to see if anybody studies it and says anything about nanotyrannus. That's what, always the first thing your mind goes to when you hear juvenile T-Rex.
1: Oh, that's true. I was focused on the pathologies.
0: Yeah, that's interesting too. Maybe they'll figure out what's going on with those holes in the back of the jaw like you were talking about. In oh, Sioux.
1: that's assuming that this one has those holes.
0: <laughs> that's true. Could be a different type of pathology. We don't even know for sure how much of the skull or anything they have yet.
1: This next item is about dinosaur metabolism. Hmm. It was a pretty cool paper. This was written by Jasmina Wyman and others and published in Nature. The main finding is that many dinosaurs and pterosaurs were endothermic and their metabolism probably didn't affect whether they survived or went extinct at the end of the Cretaceous.
0: I suppose that has been one of the thoughts. That maybe they went extinct at the end of the Cretaceous because they were warm-blooded and they needed so much food. Mm-hmm. Or alternatively, maybe they were cold-blooded and the ecosystem changed too much and it, they couldn't adapt.
1: Yes. Before I get into the paper, I just want to go over some definitions real quick. So endothermic, that's an animal generates its own heat. AKA
0: warm-blooded.
1: Yes. And ectothermic, that's when an animal doesn't regulate its own body temperature so how warm or cold it is depend on its surroundings. And yeah. It's also known as cold-blooded.
0: It is. I, and as you describe it the reason that they use endothermic and ectothermic is because endothermic things aren't necessarily warmer than mm-hmm. ectothermic. They're warmer on average because like at night and times when it's cold out they stay warm which is why it's like sort of consistently warm, whereas ectothermic is just like all over the place. Sometimes they can get hotter than endothermic things, but in general, they can get much cooler at night, especially. Yes. And that helps them in that they don't have to use all those calories to stay warm, but it hurts them because they can't move around as quickly.
1: So speaking of calories, then there's the metabolic rate, which is how much energy you use or how efficiently you convert oxygen that you breathe into energy you can use. And for example, when you're trying to keep warm or thermoregulating, you need oxygen to break down the food you eat to turn it into energy. Mm -hmm. Now, endothermic animals burn lots of calories to regulate body temperature. We're endothermic, so to regulate our body temperatures and when we're doing any kind of activity, it takes calories. Ectothermic animals, they breathe less and they eat less. You think about snakes that often only need to eat every week or two.
0: Yeah, some of the ectothermic animals are just crazy how long they can go without a meal. Mm-hmm. It's completely ludicrous. <laughs> like months in some cases.
1: Yeah. So this team, they found a new way of figuring out metabolic rates of dinosaurs and other extinct animals, and they looked at molecular waste products in the skeleton. Oh. Yeah, this happens as a byproduct of breathing oxygen. Hmm. The waste is water insoluble, so it gets preserved in the fossils. And you can see then how much oxygen the animal used or breathed. Hmm. And more oxygen used basically means the animal was endothermic and less means they were ectothermic.
0: Wow, that's interesting.
1: Yeah. So many cool ways to figure things out.
0: That's a good example of why you need a collection of fossils and, you know, to have them available because you never know when there's going to be some new analysis that you can use like that.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Now they looked at the femurs of fifty-five animals, both living modern ones and extinct ones—lizards, plesiosaurs, pterosaurs, dinosaurs, birds—and then they used lasers to analyze this. And they found that on the endothermic side, all fossil mammals, the varinids, pterosaurs, not- the notosaur dryosaurus, pachycephalosaur, platykid. All theropods, including Tyrannosaurus, Deinonychus, Allosaurus, and birds, they were all endothermic. Hmm. It's okay. possible Plesiosaurs were also endothermic. They had, however, a lower metabolic rate than the rest of the endothermic animals. But they were on more of the endothermic scale. Now, on the ectothermic side, that included the early pan-mammal Adaphosaurus, the Caristadaries, the non-varinid lipidosaurs, uh, crocodilomorph, stegosaurus, the hadrosaur that they looked at, and triceratops.
0: Wow. So there you have stegosaurus, hadrosaur, unknown hadrosaur, triceratops are ectothermic, so yes, not cold-blooded, but not regulating their body temperature. Those are large individuals, so maybe they were still fairly warm, though. With the gigantothermy thing.
1: Right. Well, so they were thinking that the dinosaurs like Triceratops and Stegosaurus, they had metabolic rates similar to modern ectothermic animals. And that would mean that they were possibly less active and maybe they basked in the sun and maybe they had to migrate when it got cold. Hmm. The theropods and sauropods that they studied had higher metabolic rates similar to modern birds and they were higher rates than mammals. Wow. Wow. That means that they would have had to eat a lot and the big ones may have had more trouble keeping cool. They ran hot. We've talked about that with sauropods.
0: Interesting. Yeah. If any of them, I would have expected maybe sauropods to be ectothermic because they're so huge that you could imagine not having to eat. As much food to stay warm. And there was the hypothesis that, well, they were so big, maybe just the bulk of their body kept them warm with like the digesting food in their gut. Mm -hmm. And then they wouldn't have needed to be endothermic. That's surprising that it was some of the smaller ones, especially hadrosaurus or a hadrosaur.
1: I'm surprised that there's differences at all.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's so many like over 100 million years of evolution, true. it would be kind of surprising if they were all exactly the same metabolic rate.
1: Well, no, but maybe they were all more on the endothermic side. Yeah.
0: You did say all mammals were, Mm -hmm. plus like all birds.
1: So they found that many early dinosaurs had a metabolic rate comparable to modern birds. And based on the sample, quote, the ancestral archosaur is inferred to have been ectothermic, end quote.
0: So the ancestral one is ectothermic, Mm -hmm. but the early dinosaurs were endothermic.
1: Right. So they inferred (laughs) that the ancestral ornithodiron was endothermic. And that's that archosaur group. It includes dinosaurs, pterosaurs, psilosaurids, and all their descendants. Wow.
0: Okay. So maybe that's one of the advantages that the early dinosaurs had over other Triassic stuff.
1: Yeah. And then they inferred that the ancestral Saurischian dinosaur was probably endothermic. They said that Ornithischians have, quote, unexpected metabolic variability, end quote. They inherited the higher metabolism from the ancestral dinosaur, but then the four-legged dinosaurs tended to, quote, converge towards ectothermic levels, Hmm. end quote. Yeah, and among the Saurischians in the study, Tyrannosaurus had the lowest metabolic rate, but it was still endothermic.
0: It was one of the larger animals, so that maybe that's part of it, that gigantothermy thing.
1: Yeah, but still this, a lower rate than the sauropod. It's interesting. Yeah,
0: that is, that is very interesting.
1: Now, metabolic rates increased in birds as they evolved. Birds and mammals evolved their metabolisms independently. And as we mentioned, birds have a higher metabolism than mammals. Dinosaurs evolved this metabolism before they evolved the ability to fly. And metabolism allows for thermal regulation, which affects ecological niches and the ability to adapt to changes in the environment.
0: Yeah, I was thinking that too, because we know sauropods seem to be one, one of the more limited in terms of their range. We don't see them near the poles really, whereas we do see hadrosaurs mm-hmm. closer to the poles. So it's very weird that the hadrosaurs were probably ectothermic yeah. and the sauropods were more endothermic. Well,
1: they were willing to migrate, maybe.
0: It must have to do with the eggs, too, and like how they nested. Yeah. But I mean, I guess there are colds. There are some cold-blooded things that live closer to the poles and stuff. They just have to be a lot less active when it's cold out.
1: Yeah. But like you're saying with the eggs, in the paper, they said that this variability in metabolism, quote, adds to the physiological differences associated with reproduction. hmm So the idea then is that since many dinosaurs had metabolisms similar to birds, metabolism probably didn't affect which animals survived and which ones went extinct at the end of the Cretaceous because the non-avian dinosaurs went extinct, but the birds are still here.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it definitely wasn't an advantage to be cold-blooded, which is sometimes what we say with like crocodilians because mm. the crocodilians made it through, but the non-avian dinosaurs didn't. And I was mm-hmm. like, well, maybe it's because they were cold-blooded and they had a lower metabolic rate and so they could just kind of hang out or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But that's not
1: how it went. Right. And even if you were more on the warm-blooded side, it didn't matter. There's something else about birds.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It probably, a lot of times people talk about it's like the size of the animal, how much food they needed to find. It's sort of a case-by-case basis. Mm -hmm. It just happened to work out for dinosaurs that basically all the cases of non-avian dinosaurs were the wrong thing to be. Yeah, That's really interesting. I will be very interested to see If somebody replicates this and if they confirm it Mm -hmm. or if they completely disagree, (laughs) Mm. because especially with these sort of biochemical data from fossils, they can be pretty controversial.
1: Sure. But it's really cool that we can look at it through this lens. Mm -hmm.
0: Maybe we'll hear more at SVP, hopefully.
1: Yeah. Well, continuing on this bird and dinosaur theme, the next paper talked about how before hatching, a bird's pelvis looks the same as a dinosaur's pelvis. Hmm. This was published also in Nature by Christopher Griffin and others. And they looked at pelvic development in alligators, chickens, quail, tinamou, another bird, and parakeets, and compared them with dinosaurs, including Archaeopteryx and Tyrannosaurus. They created 3D images for hip bones, muscles, and nerves, And they found that the bird pelvis is an example of, quote-unquote, terminal addition.
0: Like it happens at the end?
1: It has these ancestral features until very late in its development. Hmm. And in this case, that means the birds have the forward-facing pubis of a dinosaur. And then just before it hatches, the pelvis changes to that backward-facing pubis, which the paper was saying was surprising because there's other features like bird beaks that come much earlier in the embryonic development.
0: Could be useful for making a chickenosaurus. That's true. You just got to suppress that last change at the end of.
1: <laughs> that just seems like such a big change.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's that old, not always true, but popular expression of the ontogeny recapitulating phylogeny. Mm. In other words, it's like when we're in utero, we look like fish at the start, and mm-hmm. then we sort of go through phases where we look like a lot of stuff we evolved from. It looks like birds do a little bit of that too.
1: It's interesting.
0: I can't think of any other use for it other than making a chicken a sore. <laughs> why, <laughs> why would it
1: matter? <laughs> it just reaffirms the connection between non-avian dinosaurs and birds. So going back to, we talked about that sauropod that was small but didn't live on an island. There's a paper that talks about how not all dinosaurs that lived on islands may have been small. This was published by P.P. Skuchus and others in Doc Lady Earth Sciences. There was a fossil found in the southern Urals, which were probably islands at the time that the dinosaur lived. This is now Ishberta, Russia. This is the late Cretaceous. A lot of marine animal fossils were found in the quarry. Very few vertebrate fossils were found, but they include some pterosaur and dinosaur bones. Ooh,
0: that's cool.
1: Yeah, and one dinosaur bone is a caudal vertebra of a large dinosaur. It's estimated to be about 16.4 feet or 5 meters long and thought to be iguanodontia indeterminate.
0: Based on a single tail vertebra, huh?
1: Yeah. (laughs) I guess it's got enough features on there that you know. This paper is about a fragment of a long bone, which has a different structure. It looks a little different from all the other bones found at that site. The reconstructed diameter is about 2.3 to 2.5 inches, or 6 to 6.5 centimeters. Now, they did histology to learn more, and they said it's probably the bone of a, quote, relatively adult animal.
0: <laughs> I like that, relatively adult. Yeah. It's adultish.
1: It showed rapid, continuous growth and no growth marks. These features are seen in hadrosaurids and eusauropods that were large, and this find helps show that there were some large dinosaurs not subjected to the island effect.
0: Yeah, the island dwarfism.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, because sometimes you get the island gigantism. Mm-hmm. It just <laughs> it depends on the
1: island. It does. So this may be an iguanodontia bone based on the other dinosaur bone that was found in the quarry, that tail vertebra. It's probably not a sauropod bone since it's smaller than most sauropods. For now, they're just saying it's dinosauria indeterminate. You know it's a dinosaur bone. <laughs> you don't know which one. That's vague. It is possible that this dinosaur or this fossil was carried by currents from the mainland.
0: Mm, yep.
1: So it's hard to say for sure about the island effect.
0: Especially when it's just one bone and, or two bones mm-hmm. that are isolated. It's not like you found a whole skeleton that looks like it fossilized on land. It's like, well, we don't know how that one bone got there.
1: Yeah. Need more fossils. <laughs> All right. We've got a couple of papers about dinosaur tracks. This first one is about the first record of dinosaur tracks in what is now Palestine. It was published in Historical Biology by Jens and Lalinsack and others. And the paper is a lot more on how to verify fossil tracks. So if you're ever, I don't know, stumble upon them and need to verify, this could be a good reference.
0: Yeah, because there is always that question, especially with like something like a sauropod track. Mm -hmm. Is that a track or is that just a big hole in a rock?
1: Yeah. (laughs) Well, identifying tracks is not easy. Uh, Sometimes what's thought to be a track turns out to be burrows or traces of fish feeding or something else. So the authors looked at, quote, difficult, ambiguous, or controversial cases, end quote, and discussed four criteria for verifying that a track came from a tetrapod. So one is preservation of regular trackway morphology, You know, there's differences in the feet and the hands and alternating foot placement. Then the second part is preservation of track morphology that corresponds with the known anatomy, what you know of the animal, and then consistency in multiple tracks. The third part is deformation structure. That's the tracks made by feet were interacting with the substrate and the feet deform the substrate. So if you're walking on dirt or something... Kind of kicks up a little bit, and the fourth is temporal and environmental context. The tracks make sense for that time period and that place based on the sediment or the formation that they're in.
0: Oh yeah, that's a good set. Mm-hmm. Sounds like most of it is basically you need multiple tracks and then you can piece them together. Because if you just have one thing, it's hard to say. Well, is that just a footprint? But if you have a footprint next to a handprint or a series of footprints in a row, then you can be a lot more confident.
1: Yeah. So there are a couple of tracks in this formation, in the Sauric formation, this is early Cretaceous, so they applied their criteria, and they found two trackways of dinosaurs, mostly based on the first criteria with the alternating foot placement. This track site was found in 2019. It's the, quote, first known occurrence of dinosaur fossils in Palestine, end quote. The tracks are in an urban area. They were partly destroyed by a building. There was cement applied on parts of it. Oops. Yeah, it happens. But at least they found them. Yeah. The first trackway has 11 impressions that go in a zigzag pattern. And these footprints are somewhat elongated, and they're larger and deeper than most impressions nearby. And it's unclear if all the footprints are part of the trackway, though. The first footprint is different in shape from the last footprint.
0: Oh, Okay, so they could have been different track makers.
1: Could be. The tracks could be from a theropod or ornithopod. There's a slight chance it's a sauropod based on the last footprint having this dumbbell-shaped impression that looks like the manis of a sauropod, but the author said this is unlikely.
0: Yeah, sauropods have pretty different feet. Yeah. And you said this was Cretaceous, right?
1: Yeah, early Cretaceous.
0: So by the early Cretaceous, the feet of sauropods had changed quite a bit from the other dinosaurs?
1: Yes. Now, the second trackway has 10 tracks. These tracks are smaller than the ones in the first one, and the trackway is straight. There's no zigzag pattern. There's a narrow gauge, which the authors say indicates the tracks were made by a theropod. Possibly it's a juvenile, and then the first trackway was an adult. And, you know, it could have been the same genera. Hmm. There's three other trackways, but those are either two indistinct from tracks from nearby prints, or they don't have a regular trackway pattern, so they didn't talk too much about those. But yeah, it's interesting, and it's it's cool to have this criteria to apply to other tracks.
0: Yeah, I like that. Looking for the regular spacing. That is what always makes us stand out for me, too. Seeing an individual one, it's always like, is that a track? <laughs> but then if you can find other ones in like the the spacing you'd expect for a dinosaur, then you can really see it.
1: I mean, to my untrained eye, I don't know, but if I could see
0: it. (laughs) It helps. I mean, when you see enough papers where they show the trackway Mm -hmm. and they show the picture of it and it's just rock with some little divots in it, it's so hard to see. And then they usually do a drawing next to it where they just trace out where Mm. the prints are and they sometimes color code them for different track makers. And then you can really, then it all pops into focus. Like, oh yeah, now I see all of it. Yeah you do have to have that eye at first to notice them.
1: Yes. That goes for anything that's fossilized. (laughs) True. (laughs) And this last story is about a track site in the Elliott Formation, so early Jurassic.
0: And that's in Southern Africa. Either Lesotho or South Africa.
1: This was also published in Historical Biology by Jens and Lalensack and others. Hmm. Busy. Mm Mm-hmm. And they said there's at least 38 trackways and more than 350 dinosaur footprints at the TY track site.
0: Way to one-up the previous story.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it's like you're saying, um, South Africa, it's close to the border of Northwest Lesotho. The footprints are on a cliff overhang and also exposed on a fallen block at the base of the cliff. It's unclear, though, if both parts are from the same trackway or not. Oh man, can you imagine? You've got like a cliff and then right below the cliff, more trackways. Yeah. Pretty cool. There's two footprint sizes, one larger, one smaller. They're all probably from a bipedal, small to moderately large theropod. There's three toes. They're probably, this track site is the long lost Tayete Tanung track site that S.S. Dornan wrote about back in 1908. It's called the T.Y. track site because it's close to the town, which is commonly referred to as T.Y. in Lesotho. They made 3D models of the tracks based on photogrammetry. The smaller tracks tend to overprint the larger tracks.
0: Ooh, that's messy.
1: Yeah. Well, it could mean that the smaller dinosaurs walked over the same path... Right after the larger dinosaurs, or it could mean that there were earlier tracks from the smaller dinosaurs that just aren't preserved. There's, you know, due to unfavorable conditions, or just the fact that they're smaller makes it less likely to preserve.
0: Yeah. That, of course, evokes an image of like a mama dinosaur walking and the little baby, like ducklings following behind.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
0: That's pretty cool. So,
1: pretty cool. And also, I love when we hear about. Things that were discovered years ago and and somehow got lost being refound.
0: Yeah, I hadn't heard of that track site, but if it's been missing since 1908, that is quite a find. Yeah. It's kind of like finding an ancient shipwreck. (laughs) Yeah. So now we're going to do our new segment, Connecting Anythings to Dinosaurs. And this one was suggested by Lisa. Chocolate. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And that was one that I was really eager to do.
1: Chocolate is delicious.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of interesting connections I could imagine with chocolate. So I'm going to start with timing because, you know, the first question I popped into my head is, was chocolate around when dinosaurs were around?
1: Ooh, could dinosaurs have enjoyed it?
0: Y- yeah, that is the question. So chocolate comes from the cacao tree, which evolved around 10 million years ago. So no. There, yeah, there weren't any during the age of non-avian dinosaurs, oh, at least.
1: They were missing out.
0: Yeah, unfortunately. Although maybe not so unfortunately, but I'll get into why. (laughs) So like many plants associated with other parts of the world, it came from the Amazon basin. So many plants come from the Amazon. That's why the rainforest is so important there. Large terror birds were around until at least 2 million years ago, which means that they could have eaten chocolate or at least eaten something that had eaten cacao fruit. (laughs)
1: Have a chocolate flavor to their meat. <laughs> yeah,
0: p- potentially. And as a side note, terror birds are amazing. They basically look like a large dinosaur, like flightless, like an oh, emu yeah. crossed with a dinosaur. And when we get to 250 patrons, we're going to start doing bonus episodes for the Triceratops tiering up. And it's definitely going to be one of the first things that we talk about <laughs> because terror birds are so cool.
1: It has been declared.
0: Yeah but I still want to give a quick summary here. They were predatory flightless birds that grew up to 10 feet tall. And at least one genus, Titanus, moved north of Panama after North America and South America connected about 2.7 million years ago, Hmm. which means that terror birds migrated north in the same way that cacao trees did after they were domesticated because they started out in like Peru and then they got traded north and eventually ended up with some of the people in Mesoamerica. Interesting. Yeah. The first evidence of cacao domestication is from South America about 5,300 years ago, and that's about 1,500 years before it made it to Central America.
1: Humans knew chocolate was worth it. (laughs)
0: Yes, (laughs) definitely figured that out. So the word cacao, too, also has a roundabout connection to dinosaurs. Okay. So cacao, the word, probably comes from the Olmecs of Mesoamerica, and that's the same Olmec That's referred to in Legends of the Hidden Temple. (laughs) And one year I dressed up for Halloween as the purple parrots, which are dinosaurs and are also one of the teams in Legends of the Hidden Temple. So
1: many connections.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's another one. (laughs) Probably the most important question is, even if cacao was around with dinosaurs, because, you know, you could argue the terror birds were dinosaurs, Mm because not non-avian dinosaurs, but dinosaurs, would they have eaten cocoa,
1: or chocolate. If they could.
0: So, according to the San Diego Zoo, quote, monkeys, birds, fruit-eating bats, and rodents also have a taste for cacao. Of course. End quote. However, quote, they gnaw open the pods to eat the sweet pulp, but the cacao seeds themselves are bitter, so wildlife spit them out. End quote.
1: Wasn't that what we do, too? We have to process it somehow to make chocolate?
0: Yeah, we, like, roast them and all that. Yeah, so even though we keep saying chocolate and I'm talking about cacao, cocoa is made from the seeds and then that can be further processed into chocolate. So in terms of dinosaurs eating chocolate, they would have to take the seeds out and process them and turn it into chocolate. But even if they were just eating the seeds, you'd say like, okay, well, they were eating cocoa. That's basically the same thing. Mm-hmm. They probably weren't though. If anything, they would have eaten the cacao fruit. And again, it wasn't around till 10 million years ago. Right. So It's unlikely that dinosaurs would have eaten cocoa, let alone chocolate, even if they're around in the Mesozoic. And it's not too surprising that the seeds are unpleasant to eat because from a plant's perspective, the whole goal is to get something to eat the pulp and then distribute the seeds for you. You don't want them to grind up the seeds and digest them because then, you know, what's the point? The fruit is there to attract the animals to spread the seeds, not to eat the seeds. Yeah, the plants have their own (laughs) plans. They do. At least they have them via evolution. And as a side note, plants did not evolve to be tasty to humans. They evolved to spread their seeds and to grow and all that kind of stuff. There's no intrinsic value to more natural plants because before cultivation, many plants have natural toxins, which aren't good for human consumption. And then we used selective breeding or modification to reduce those toxins. That's what basically we did with the cacao tree those 5,000 years ago. And then breeding can also create larger fruit which makes agriculture more efficient allowing more people to eat the food and that also makes it more sustainable because then it takes up much less land per calorie grown so i don't know this is a side note because i hear a lot of people talk about natural plants Mm. and it's like natural isn't necessarily good for people natural plants are there to defend themselves from getting eaten right (laughs) not to you know be tasty to people and on that note it's probable that chocolate would have been poisonous to dinosaurs because even the domesticated cacao seeds mm-hmm. leads to chocolate, which is poisonous to many animals, like, like dogs, dogs. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And also parrots and parrots are dinosaurs.
1: Well, I didn't realize.
0: I couldn't find a dinosaur that could eat a cacao seed without being poisoned. Mm-hmm. I think it's because, you know, parrots are very common in South America where the tree is and a lot of people have seen them eat the fruit, but not eat the seeds.
1: Yeah. Interesting. So my take, well, I had a couple takes. The, my quick, easy way out was that you can buy dinosaur molds to make your own chocolate or just order dinosaur shaped chocolate.
0: <laughs> That's true.
1: <laughs> Which actually we haven't done. Maybe we should look into that. Making chocolate sounds like a lot of work. Here's a quick overview from a recipe I found online. I've never made chocolate myself, so I don't know exactly how much work it is. Just sounds like a lot to me. The ingredients include cocoa butter, dry milk powder, cocoa powder, and salt. And you melt the cocoa butter. You add the rest of the ingredients, mix them together, leave it to cool for a few minutes, and then pour it all into a mold. Of course, you'd want a dinosaur mold, Mm because why not? And then you leave it in the freezer for about 20 to 30 minutes, and then you can move it to the fridge.
0: Interesting. And that's quite a few steps in because you're starting with a couple ingredients which are containing cocoa.
1: Right. (laughs) That's true. (laughs)
0: Because there are steps before that where it's like, pluck the seed pot from the tree. And then I know they dry them because I saw these pictures of tons of cacao seeds Mm -hmm. drying in the sun. And then I guess they must maybe roast them or something. I don't know. Maybe they just dry them in the sun. And then, yeah, you grind them up into powder, I think, is usually the next step.
1: Yeah. Yeah. If you want to start from real scratch, there are all those steps, too.
0: Yeah. As a dinosaur would have to.
1: I don't know how they would do all this. <laughs> they don't have opposable thumbs. Yeah, they got good beaks. <laughs> That's true.
0: <laughs> Might be able to grind it with some dental batteries, spit it out.
1: Mm. Ooh, that bitter taste, though. Yeah. Not ideal.
0: And now we're going to pause for one more quick sponsor break. But when we get back, we'll be talking about Dinosaur of the Day Xanabazar.
1: And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Xanobazar, which was a request from LREX and Pitcher via our Patreon and Discord, so thanks! Xanobazar was a troodontid that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Mongolia, the Nemegt formation. It looked similar to troodon, or trudon. The paleoart shows large claws, a long tail, an S-curved neck, and it's feathered. It's one of the largest troodontids, and it's the largest known Asian troodontid. It's estimated to grow up to 7.5 feet or 2.3 meters long and weigh 55 pounds or 25 kilograms.
0: It's a monster.
1: (laughs) You could say that about almost any dinosaur.
0: It would be scary in real life, but that does sound kind of comically small for a predator.
1: (laughs) The skull was about 10.7 inches or 27 centimeters long. It had a large brain compared to its body size. The fossils were first found in 1964 as part of the first joint Mongolian Soviet paleontological expedition. Originally, it was named as a new species of Sorornithoides, Sorornithoides Jr., by Barsvold in 1974. The type species, since this was a new species of Sorornithoides, the type species of Sorornithoides is Sorornithoides mongoliensis. But then in 2009, Sorornathoides Jr. was reclassified as Xanabazar Jr. by Mark Norrell and others.
0: It's a good name. It is. I like saying Xanabazar a lot better than Sor It is
1: a little <laughs> bit easier to say. Yeah. A little
0: marble mouthy there.
1: <laughs> now Xanabazaar was the first spiritual head of Tibetan Buddhism in Outer Mongolia, who lived between sixteen thirty five to seventeen twenty three. Cool. Now, Henry Osborne named Sorornithoides mongoliensis in 1924. That's based on a skull and fragments of the body. At the time, Troodon formosus was known only from teeth and not recognized as a theropod. So Osborne compared Sorornithoides with Velociraptor and suggested, quote, it may prove to have avian relationships.
0: <laughs> and so it did.
1: Yes. Now, Xanobazaar was referred to Sauronothoides because of similarities. Sauronothoides was the only other well-known troodontid with a skull at the time, and both were from the late Cretaceous of Central Asia. But more troodontid specimens have been described in the 1980s to early 2000s, and that's why Xanobazaar got re-examined. The holotype includes a nearly complete skull and brain case, some tail vertebrae, and right hind limb. The holotype vertebrae are completely fused, so it was probably an adult. Norrell and others did CT scans and found enough differences between Sauronothoides jr., now Xanabazar, and Sauronothoides mongoliensis. And Norrell and others acknowledged, yes, this is only based on two specimens, but both holotypes are adults. So, safe to say the differences mean something. Xanobazar is larger than Sauronothoides. The skull, again, is inches long, 272 millimeters, and Sauronithoidy's skull is 7.4 inches or 189 millimeters long. Xanabazar has more teeth than Sauronithoidy's, 118 teeth compared to 108. (laughs) That's a lot of teeth. (laughs) Yeah. The brain case also looks slightly different, and then there's other details. It's got a lot of similarities with Sauronothoides, but that could be because the similarities are plesiomorphic. They're ancestral characters, and they share them with other Troodontids, including Troodon Formosus. Two other Troodontids have been described that were found in the Nemet Formation, Borogovia, which is known from a partial hind limb, and Tochosaurus, which is known from some foot bones. But with Xanobazar, we don't have these same hind limb, and foot bones preserved, so you can't compare them and know if these dinosaurs are synonymous or if they still are different genera.
0: Yeah. So they might get lumped in the future, some of them.
1: If they find more fossils. Other dinosaurs that lived around the same time and place include Tyrannosaurs, Ankylosaurs, Alvarosaurs, Dromaeosaurs, Hadrosaurs, Ornithomimosaurs, Pachycephalosaurs, Sauropods, and Therazenosaurs. And other animals... That were also around at the same time and place include amphibians, crocodilomorphs, fish, mammals, pterosaurs, and turtles. Turtles seem to come up every time. Yeah.
0: Well, there was a lot in the Nemect formation too. It was yes. a happening place. Oh yeah. And our fun fact of the day goes back to when I was talking about Sauraniops. Sauraniops.
1: <laughs> hmm Oh yes, Tolkien.
0: <laughs> yeah. So it turns out over 200 animals and other things have been named after J.R.R. Tolkien and his
1: works. Wow!
0: Yeah. And a big thank you to the editors who keep the Wikipedia page of Tolkien's namesakes up to date, because that's not a easy job. No. <laughs> it happens so often. So yeah, I mentioned the Carcharodontosaurid Sauraniops earlier that it was also the dinosaur of the day you did in episode 342 mm-hmm. a little over a year ago. I think the best name in Middle Earth for a dinosaur would be Glaurung. Why? Because Glaurung was the first dragon. Oh. So obviously being the first dragon, you know, dinosaurs were the first dragony things on Earth, I think. It was quadrupedal and it could spit fire, but it couldn't fly, the Glaurung in Lord of the Rings. Mm. The depictions of it remind me a lot of the Crystal Palace dinosaurs and just Victorian recreations of giant reptiles in general. You mm. just these big lumbering quadrupedal things, but still fairly menacing with like a big head full of teeth and everything.
1: Right. And it could spit fire.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, they didn't think dinosaurs could in Victorian no, times. but, but
1: <laughs> Glaurung. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Unfortunately, Glaurung has been used quite a bit for naming other animals. There's a gliding reptile genus named Glaurung. Hmm. So a dinosaur would need to be Glaurung a titan or something. I think it's kind of silly that they named the gliding reptile after Glaurung. Since Since it couldn't fly? Yeah, this it's like the whole thing about it is it (laughs) couldn't fly. So anyway.
1: Now, if there was a reptile that could spit fire.
0: (laughs) That's true. Then it would definitely get dibs. So I think it would be a great name for an early dinosaur or an early quadrupedal dinosaur or really, there's a lot of different ways, but it should probably be from the Triassic because, you know.
1: It's the first dragon.
0: Yeah, it's got to be early. There are other animals named after Tolkien himself. There are seven invertebrates named after him, including (laughs) the trilobite Tolkienia. nice, Which is pretty cool. And then there are six other species that have the species name Tolkieni.
1: Yeah, you could have an unlimited number of species names.
0: Yep. Yep. But Tolkienia is always just the trilobite. They could Latinize it another way. Mm -hmm. You know, they could have like J.R.R. Tolkienia or something. Paleontologist Levon Valen named 28 fossil mammals after Tolkien's works.
1: Wow. Must have been a fan.
0: (laughs) Yes, definitely. And it includes five that are named for elvish words. Wow. My favorite is M meanwhile i think i don't speak elvish it is described as quote the time at dawn when the stars fade reference is to the dawn of the cenozoic and the fading of the mesozoic stars and quote very poetic it is so poetic yeah so basically this is a mammal that was popping up essentially when dinosaurs went away and mammals evolved mm-hmm. which is such a cool name Valen really knew his Tolkien. There are a lot of deep cuts in his names. A lot of them have really cool descriptions too. One other one that I'm going to call out is a mammal named Deltatherium Durinai hmm. after Durin, and he said, "Quote, name of many dwarf kings in the Lord of the Rings," <laughs> <a quote. laughs> which reminds me, if you've been watching the War of the Rings, the elf meets with him, I think Elrond, and he says, "Durin, son of Durin, son of Durin," son, of- <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. and he cuts them off because they're all just named Durin. It's pretty funny.
1: Yeah, I think you mean the Lord of the Rings, the rings of power.
0: That is what I meant. Yeah, the War of the Ring is the later thing that the movies are based on. I
1: think we also have a board game.
0: Oh, yeah, we do Called War of the Ring. There's also a single entomologist, Lori Kyla, who named 38 moths after Tolkien and his works. Wow. She also really knew her stuff because 16 of them were named after mostly obscure humans in the series. And 17 of them were named after elves, again, mostly obscure elves, and that, that adds up to over 30. So that's most of the names that she came up with. And then just breaking down the other groups that things have been named after, 37 of them are named after hobbits. <laughs> Golem is the most popular. <laughs> there are three funny things named after Golem. There's a snail because it, quote, lived in darkness, preferably underground.
1: All right. Makes sense.
0: A spider, quote, given the evil look of the male of the species, end quote, because of its huge fangs, Hmm. and a gecko because, quote, this new species and golem have similar cave dwelling habit and emaciated body. An
1: emaciated gecko.
0: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it's kind of sad, but maybe a good description for a golem namesake. There are also 25 elves, 23 Ainur, which are Gandalf and Sauron. Are the two most famous and they're also tied with five names each. Hmm. Nineteen men, fourteen dwarves, thirteen dragons. Smog is the most popular. And apparently it's actually pronounced smog, not oh. smog, in case you want to be a real Tolkien head. There are seven Nazgul. They're all just named Nazgulai, basically. Three ents and two orcs. There's also quite a few things in space named after Tolkien. Astronomers are a big fantasy fans, I guess, in general. There are things ranging from stars to nebulas and galaxies, all nicknamed the Eye of Sauron.
1: Oh, that makes sense.
0: Especially after the movie came out and sort of made that eyeball, that like glowing red one. There are some things in space that when you look at them in the right spectrum look just like that, and Mm. it's kind of freaky. There are also six hills and 14 mountains on Titan, that moon of Jupiter, that are named after characters and mountains in Middle Earth. There are also nine undersea features named after Middle Earth. And then the coolest thing that I found named after Tolkien has nothing to do with dinosaurs, but it's super cool. In genetics research, a couple proteins and a gene in fruit flies are named after Middle Earth characters, which doesn't sound that exciting, but it's a really cool combination. So there's this gene called nanos, which is Greek for dwarf. And then they found a protein that inhibits it. And they named it smog (laughs) or smog after the dragon who killed tons of dwarves to get their treasure which I think is so just- So they're a, enemies. Exactly. And there's a gene that degrades smog or smog. I don't know. I can't figure out which way to say it. And it's named Bard after Bard the Bowman who killed smog. Mm, so it's like a Very full, apt. They got all three of them. They're all connected together, just like they were in the story. There's also another protein that inhibits nanos that's named Glorund, which is an alternate spelling of the first dragon. Interesting. Yeah, it's pretty cool.
1: Lots of Tolkien fans out there.
0: There are, including me.
1: And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thank you for listening. Again, if you are not yet part of our community, our dino dolls, then go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash I Know Dino. It's a great time because we're at SVP and we have a lot of great bonus content coming up. Thanks again. And until next time.